All right, let's pray together. Father, we do look forward to the day when victory will be the song, not just in anticipation of what you were going to do in us, but as a reality of seeing it with our eyes. Father, we long to see Jesus, and we long to be like him, and we know that when we do see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So, Father, I pray that you would help us now to see him standing forth in your word. Open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Groundhog Day isn't exactly a day that we mark on the church calendar. It's a day, however, that I mark just about every year by watching the movie of the same name. And I did so again this past week. Um, if you read this widely circulated review, it's an, actually an old review, written by Jonah Goldberg. He wrote this uh, review that has been read uh, over the years of this movie. And he says it's one of the best movies of the last 40 years, and that it will almost, quote, undoubtedly join It's a Wonderful Life in the pantheon of America's most, most uplifting, morally serious, enjoyable, and timeless movies. I agree with Goldberg. I'm not recommending this for family movie night or anything, but um, the, the character's kind of dark, and his behavior kind of reflects that. But um, I do think it's, it's a fascinating story because it focuses on this self-absorbed, prima donna TV weatherman named Phil Connors. And he's assigned to cover the annual Groundhog Day celebration in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, which, you know, we've seen pictures of that probably every year in February. And so he resents this assignment, and he hates the small town. He hates the Hicks who inhabit the small town. He looks down on them, and he just wants to get out of there as soon as he can. But a snowstorm prevents him from leaving after he's, you know, covered this for the news station. And so they have to stay the night in Punxsutawney. But the next morning when he gets up, by some unexplained glitch in the universe, it's Groundhog Day all over again. And, and Phil is the only one who knows he's living this same day over again. And it keeps happening over and over. He gets up and it's the same day, but everybody else, it's like the first time they've lived this day. And so there he is. And so he's, he's stuck there. And at first he's angry about it. But when he realizes that repeating the same day means that there's no consequences for his actions, he just decides to leverage the situation for his own hedonistic ends. And he lives for sensual pleasure. He eats like a garbage can. He lives, um, he, he, he chain smokes. He manipulates women and tries to add as many as he can to his conquests. But he runs into a brick wall with one woman, his producer, Rita. No matter how hard he tries and how many days he spends gathering intelligence on this woman, she is a fortress of virtue, and she will not bend to his manipulation. And so he begins to actually admire her and to love her. But she doesn't love him. She's disgusted by his self-absorption and pride. And so he begins to despair, and he attempts repeatedly to take his own life and to find that only after he dies, he still wakes up every morning living the same day over and over again. So he's, in effect, immortal at this point. But it's a curse to him because he is a wretched life and character. And at a, pivotal, at a really pivotal moment, in the story, he's in the midst of his despair. Rita tells him what he is like. And she says he is like the wretch in that famous poem by Sir Walter Scott. And she, she just recites these words over him. The wretch concentered on all self, living shall forfeit fair renown, and doubly dying shall go down to vile dust 
whence he sprung, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. And so he's condemned by Rita's words, but inspired by her encouragement to be a better man. And so he resolves to be the kind of man who could deserve her. And so he changes. He resolves to take his cursed, never-ending day and to live it in such a way so as to add his blessing to this single day. And over endless repetitions of the day, he seeks to perfect himself and to perfect the day. He sheds his cynicism and becomes kind, and he becomes generous. He begins to love the people in the town. He begins to love the, the town. He succeeds in learning to be a piano player, and he's like a real virtuoso. He plunges his mind into great poetry and literature. He learns to sculpt. He becomes an ice sculptor. Every day he rescues a boy falling from a tree. Every repetition of the day he's saving the mayor from choking to death. He, fi he fixes the blown out tire of these three elderly women every day. He's a different man and it's, it's, it's this real story of redemption except for one thing. This one little thing that's sort of dropped into the middle of the story that's discordant with the rest of what's happening in this guy's life. There's this old beggar in the town that he begins to call dad. And at the beginning, when he was selfish, he just ignored the guy and blew the guy off. But he took an interest in this guy, this old beggar, that he calls dad. And he learns that dad actually dies at the end of that day. And so he sets himself to figure out how to keep dad from dying. But no matter what he does and no matter what heroic measure, measures he implements, he can't keep dad from dying. Day after day, he watches dad die until he realizes that he cannot fix death. And there's, there's one poignant scene that, that struck me this time. He's kneeling over dad's body, having failed once again to revive him. He's despairing over being able to save his life. And he turns his face up. And he doesn't say anything, but he's looking at heaven as if to say, what do you want from me? I can't perfect everything. For all the power I have to change and to do what's right, I can't fix this. I can't fix death. And so he just has to move on from dad and leave him to die. The story's provocative on a number of levels, but this, this time... As I was looking at it, it was this particular part with dad that, that struck me. What have you really fixed in your life if you can't fix death? Now, I believe the depiction of Phil Connor's character and his extreme personal makeover is it's so extreme that it's actually unrealistic for anybody to achieve, I, I would say, apart from grace. But even if it were possible to become the best possible version of you, so you're no longer selfish, you give your life to serving others, you're kind, you're considerate, you're a blessing to your family, you're a blessing to your community, even if you were able to muster that kind of character and to be all of those things, what good would it do to you at the end of the day if you can't fix death? If at the end of all your goodness you still have to die? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. If there's no remedy for death, even our faith and hope in God would be for nothing. It wouldn't fix anything if it doesn't fix death. Indeed, the power to fix death is the same power that's really needed to fix us. And what's broken with us in the here and now. And God alone is the one we confess that has the power to do this. And the question is whether or not we will access this power. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, at verses 7 to 12. In our last message, in the first six chapters, the first six verses of this chapter... We saw Paul is outlining what a faithful ministry looks like. 
And he does it by describing his own ministry. He insists that he didn't adulterate the word of God. He didn't walk in craftiness. Rather, with an open manifestation of the truth, he commends himself to everyone's conscience whenever he preaches. He explains that even if some people are blind to the gospel, that is no fault of the gospels. No, the gospel is powerful to shine in all of our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And so that's verses 1 through 6. And so now, in verse, beginning of verse 7, Paul is going to explain how that powerful work of the gospel can possibly come to pass when it's carried around in weak vessels like us. And he says that the only way that it can happen is through God's power, which is the central theme, God's power at work within us. And he's, we're going to see here three aspects of this. He talks about God's power in our suffering in verses 7 through 9, God's power in our mortality in verses 10 to 12, and God's power in our thanksgiving in verses 13 through 15. So God's power in suffering, God's power in our mortality, God's power in our thanksgiving. The first thing is God's power in our suffering. Everybody look at verse 9. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Again, notice that Paul is talking about we and us again. We have this treasure and that that power of God belongs to us, he says. And just remember that Paul's still using that figure of speech called the apostolic we, where plural pronouns are standing for singular persons. So when Paul says we and us, he's thinking of I and me, and he's thinking of himself. So he's essentially saying, I have this treasure in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to me. So here's the question. What is this treasure that Paul says that he has? Well, it's obvious that it's something valuable because he calls it a treasure. But what is it? In context, I think he's referring to what he said in verse 6. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That light is the gospel of Christ. That the Spirit of God causes to bring light and life into our hearts. It's the gospel that regenerates Paul. It's the gospel that regenerates us. So I think it's safe to say that the treasure that he's talking about is the gospel itself along with all of its life and light-giving effects in our hearts and then, of course, in Paul's heart. But he's acknowledging that he carries this powerful, spirit-infused gospel in a jar of clay. Some of your translations say, in an earthen vessel. When you read that phrase, jar of clay or earthen vessel, you need to be visualizing something very cheap and brittle. It's something that would have, could have been used and then thrown away. And these little earthen vessels in Paul's day would have been ubiquitous. They were very easily broken and disposable and very common. A functional equivalent today would be like a paper bag or a, a little Ziploc baggie that you put a sandwich in. You know that we buy those things, but the bag is not the point. It's the, the point is the food or the items in the bag. So when you're done with the bag, you throw it away. Kind of like your wallet. When a guy loses his wallet, he turns the house upside down to find the wallet. But why is he looking for the wallet? It's really not so much because of the wallet, but because of what's in the wallet. There are things of value in the wallet. There's money. There are credit cards. All of his economic power is in the wallet. In the same way, God has given us the life-giving, soul-transforming, spirit-infused gospel to be carried about in little disposable, breakable, weak clay pots. So guess what the clay pots are? Well, they're Paul, and they are us. We receive the gospel. Our hearts are awakened to new life by the gospel. We proclaim the gospel, and we see God's power go forth from us to others in that same gospel. And what are we for all of that? We are unglorified, weak, 
inconstant sinners still trying to get our act together. We are clay pots. And we're walking around in mortal bodies that are deteriorating and that will eventually die. And so the question is, why in the world has God put this invaluable treasure inside of the likes of us? Well, look at the last half of the verse. He tells us why. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He does this because God wants it clear to us and to the world that the power to save is not from us. It's not from Paul, but from Almighty God. God is not trying to make much of us and our work as if we are the end all and be all of the universe. God wants to make much of himself and his work through us because he is the end all and be all of the universe. God's making much of himself and his saving purposes towards us are not at odds with one another. God's grace to us is that he means to do good to us and to save us as the very means by which he glorifies himself. The weaker we are, the more conspicuous his power becomes. That's what that means. So grace and God's making much of us is, is not at odds. Our being weak and him being strong is not at odds. It's all to our good and all to his glory. Somebody might say, well, pastor, but my faith is so small. This text is telling you that it's really not the size of your faith that's as important as the object of your faith. You say, but... But Denny, I don't have very much influence or talent. This text is saying that your abilities and influence aren't nearly as important as God's abilities and influence. You say, but Denny, I'm old and I'm, I'm tired and my body is slowing down. It is breaking down. This text is saying, you take care, little clay pot. I put this treasure in the likes of you to show the world my power in you. The surpassing greatness of the power of God through you. In short, this little text is telling all the little disposable feeling people, it's telling you to consider your calling. There were not many of you wise according to the flesh, not many of you mighty, not many of you noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. In other words, you might feel disposable, but you actually aren't disposable. You, in all of your weakness, have been chosen by God as the platform upon which God has planned to show his power to the world. And the weaker you are, the more conspicuous God's power is when you're walking in the truth and bearing witness to his goodness in your life. Jesus would no more dispose of you than he would his right arm. Because the treasure is transforming the vessel. Have you considered how God might wish to use your weakness, whatever it is, to be the platform for displaying his power in you. Paul is considering that. He is setting that before the Corinthians. He's setting it before us. And he's telling us of his own experience to show what he means by this. Look at verse 8. He says, we are afflicted in every way. And keep in mind, he's saying, I'm afflicted in every way. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to, to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul was never more weak than when he was suffering for the gospel. And yet God was never more conspicuously powerful than when he was at his lowest. And here when Paul says he was afflicted in verse 8, it literally means to be pressed in as if you were being squeezed with increasing amounts of pressure. And Paul says, I'm pressed in, but I'm not crushed. 
perplexed. It means to be like in a confused state of mind, to be at a loss, to be uncertain. I think you can identify with Paul. Have you ever felt this way? Has your pain or your grief about something ever been so acute that you thought you couldn't imagine that you could bear it for another moment? It was just suffocating you? Paul talks like that. And yet he says, I'm perplexed, but not despairing. Paul's saying, I don't feel like I have anything left in the tank sometimes, but I'm not giving up on the Lord's goodness to me. Persecuted means to be pursued and mistreated on account of the gospel. Paul says he was persecuted. And Paul, we know, experienced the kind of physical threat to his person and even to his life sometimes that were dangerous and horrifying. And yet he says, I'm persecuted but not forsaken. Forsaken by whom? Forsaken by God. Paul knows that no matter what they do to his little clay pot, God is never going to leave him. No one can get the treasure out of his pot. <laughs> Therefore, the little clay pot has all the power he will ever need to endure. Finally, Paul says that he was struck down but not destroyed there in verse 9. That word for destroyed is the same word that he uses in, in, in verse 3 to refer to lost people who are perishing in judgment. Remember verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those on their way to final judgment. He's saying, I'm struck down, but I'm not perishing. It brings to mind what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear that one, the one who can destroy like this. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm persecuted. I'm persecuted, I'm struck down, but I am not perishing. God is taking care of me. And Paul knows that no matter what they do to him, they can't overcome the power of God at work in him. Even if they break and destroy his little clay pot, God's going to raise him up again. So you know what all of this, this means for us? It means that none of us should expect to be without suffering in this life. We are all going to experience grief and distress and affliction that makes us feel constricted and like we can't bear it and that will make us feel perplexed sometimes for the sake of the gospel and sometimes for reasons that we that are just unclear to us and we're going to feel pressed in and persecuted and struck down none of us are going to be exempt from those kinds of experiences in fact we should expect for God to bring those kinds of experiences into our lives. But the good news that Paul is trying to communicate in this text is not that we will never have those experiences, but that God is committed to show his power through us in those experiences. That's when he wants to come to us. When you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that's when it happens. He did that for Paul, and he's aiming to do that for us. So verses 7 through 9, Paul is trying to talk about God's power in our suffering. But he also is talking about God's power in our mortality. Everybody look at verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, these three verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, are linked by Paul's explicit references to his mortality. He refers to his mortal flesh in verse 11. And repeatedly, in all three verses, about carrying around the death of Jesus. And so it's clear that Paul's now contemplating a scenario in which his persecution, which up until now has led to deliverances, Right? He's not dead yet. But he's contemplating a moment when his persecution might wind up in his own death. He'd been delivered thus far, but he knows it might not always be that way. And so every time that he is seized, arrested, and then stoned or beaten or imprisoned, he, he never knows if this is the time when the axe is finally going to fall. 
He doesn't know how often the deliverances are going to come. So in every one of these experiences, and just read through the book of Acts to get just a glimpse of the kinds of things he went through, in every one of these experiences, in every conflict, he has to be willing to take up his cross and go all the way to Golgotha if it comes to that. He's got to go all the he's got to be willing every time to take it all the way to the hill if it's the Lord's will. So in that sense, he's doing what it says in verse 10. He's carrying around the death of Jesus everywhere that he goes. Always willing to suffer and suffering a lot and always willing if it comes to it to suffer to the point of death. But why? Why is this happening? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The life of Jesus refers to his powerful resurrection from the dead. What does it mean when a little clay pot that's beleaguered, being chipped at, being pressed? What does it mean when people see that and they watch it not break? What does it mean when a person's being persecuted, they're beleaguered, they're pressed in, they're perplexed, and it doesn't break? It's not a testament to the pot. It's a testament to the treasure that's in the vessel. You know, Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. What does that mean? It means that there's nothing that you lay down for Christ that you won't get back again and then some after you are resurrected. The down payment of life in Jesus, that Paul's referring to here, is the powerful spirit of Christ that's within us, enabling us to hold on to the promises of God for the future. Indeed, Jesus's life is already working in us right now and will work all the way until our bodies are raised unto new life. And Paul's saying that life is never more manifest than when he is suffering and under the threat of death. How can a little clay pot withstand such abuse and remain intact? It can't. It's the power of God sustaining him even under the threat of death. And so he says in verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 11, if you notice, is almost repeating verse 10. One thing here I would draw your attention to that's important because it's different is where he says, being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That language there is important because the verb translated as being given over, sometimes translated as um, being delivered over, it's the standard language that you see in the New Testament for Jesus' being handed over to crucifixion. And so, in fact, this is the way Paul speaks about Jesus' crucifixion. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He who was delivered over or handed over or given over. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was delivered over. Sometimes translated as betrayed, but it's really delivered over, handed over. In both of those texts... You can tell, just like in the text we're looking at this morning, the verb is passive, meaning that Jesus, when he was delivered over, he didn't deliver himself over merely, but was being delivered over by someone else. Namely, he was being delivered over by his father. And Paul says as much in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And now Paul is saying, for we who who live are always being given over, always being delivered over for Jesus' sake. Paul is taking that language, which is stock language for Jesus' betrayal, 
and he's applying it to himself. And by implication, it applies to us, but he's saying it applies to himself. And just as that passive voice implies God's agency in Jesus' suffering, so also the passive voice is indicating God's agency in handing over Paul to suffering as well. I'm belaboring this because you have to understand that Paul's suffering was God's plan. This is not just these out-of-control things happening and God's making lemonade out of lemons in Paul's life. No, this is like Jesus was handed over. Paul is being handed over with God as the ultimate agent. God is not surprised by, God, by Paul's suffering. He planned it. And he's not surprised by your suffering either. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. No one should be surprised by suffering. Pressed? Yes, you're going to be pressed. Crushed? No. Persecuted? Yes. Forsaken? No. Never. God has measured out our suffering according to his own wise will. And he gets us through it, through the Holy Spirit, enabling us to trust in the promise of our resurrection so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's what he says. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So he says in verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. What Paul means by that is, is, look, my daily suffering of indignity and persecution and of potential death shows that God is at work in me. Death is at work in us. And he also means this. He's trying to say that the result of my persecuted ministry is life in you. Who can contain the all-surpassing power of God in me for you, Corinthians? And the answer to that question is nobody can. So it's really interesting when you look at Paul and you, you think about the way that he's patterning his own ministry after what he sees in Jesus. And when you read the account of Jesus' death and resurrection, you really never get the sense that Jesus was scared. Maybe the closest thing that you might perceive in that regard is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Jesus is praying, if it be your will, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. And yet, even when you read that, it's not, it's not really an expression of fear. It's not fear at all. I think he's despising the sin and the shame that's going to go into his betrayal and crucifixion. I'm sure he's expressing revulsion at the evils to come. But it's not fear so he knows what's coming how does he walk into that hebrews 12 says fixing our eyes on jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross how does he look through this horror of the cross on the front end in gethsemane because of the joy that set before him he endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Paul is patterning his ministry in the way he thinks about suffering by looking at Jesus. The apostles are consistently telling us to do the same. We look at Jesus, we look at how they dealt with suffering, how they dealt with affliction, and that's what we do. And the way you do it is by despising the affliction, which means looking down on it as light and as momentary, and looking through it to the weightier thing on the other side, for the joy set before us. How did Jesus endure the suffering? How did he keep from shriveling up in fear? By looking through the cross to the crown, by holding in contempt and thinking very little of death's horrific elements and looking forward in confidence to the unspeakable joys on the other side. 
The resurrection, the confidence in the resurrection pulls him through. As it was with Jesus, so it is with Paul. And as it is with Paul, so it has to be with us. If we are going to stand when our time comes, we're going to have to hold fast to what God has told us. Some of us aren't going to know when our time comes. It's going to be sudden and a surprise. Some of us are going to see it coming. And we're going to have to think about it. And we're going to have to deal with thoughts of fear. Temptations to be anxious. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to have to hold fast to what God has told us. Death is not going to be an accident for us. All of our days have been written in his book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139 says, we don't know the date, but God knows the date. It's written down. And we're not going to die, this ought to be a great comfort, one minute before the date and the time. Or after. And when it's time, we're going to find that he is wise and right in the time that he appoints. And we will also find that no matter the cause of our demise, the way we make it through is by trusting in the God who raises the dead. That's why it's so important that we be about training our hearts to trust the Lord every day. We trust him in the little things. We trust him in the little afflictions. We need to use pandemics and civil unrest and trials at work and illnesses as occasions for learning to trust the Lord. We train our hearts to suffer well because until we're ready to die, we actually aren't ready to live. And that truly is the key to unshakable joy. You have to be ready to die. I remember being struck one time talking to Tom Schreiner. He's my doctoral advisor and friend over the years. And this was, I don't know, a year or two ago. And he was talking about his future, his ministry. And he was talking about his death. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I might die. <laughs> I might die. That'll be okay. He really meant it. I just, my, my jaw was on the floor. He, he really meant it. I'd be fine. Um, I, I, I was thinking about that, preparing this sermon, saying, Lord, give me that attitude. Give me that attitude. Paul talks about God's power in our suffering, God's power in our mortality. He talks about God's power in our thanksgiving. Everybody look at verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Here Paul's explaining why he speaks as he does about suffering. It turns out that he views his suffering in a way that's been deeply shaped by Psalm chapter 116, which is our call to worship this morning. And he quotes from Psalm 116. You see it there. I believed and so I spoke. Now, some commentators make this all about, um, you know, I have faith and therefore I spoke the gospel and that this is all about Paul's gospel proclamation. I, I disagree with that. The, the, the commentators that do that tend to be ripping this verse out of its context in the Psalms. And they think that Paul is ripping the verse out of the context in the Psalms. In fact, one of the commentators I read said no apparent, it says that Paul shows no apparent concern for its meaning in its original context. To which I say, baloney. Psalm 116 is all about the psalm, the psalmist going through affliction. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about Christians and himself going through affliction. And the psalmist is talking about going through affliction, and what does he do in the midst of affliction? He cries out to God. Paul knows the context, and of course he's identifying with the suffering of the psalmist. 
And not only that, Paul is saying that he has learned from the psalmist what to do in the midst of affliction. Paul says he has the same spirit of faith that the psalmist has. So he does as the psalmist does. And the psalmist cries out to the Lord for help and deliverance in the midst of affliction. Psalm 116.3 says, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, deliver my soul. The Lord is merciful and righteous. Yea, our God has pity. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he delivered me. In the moment of need, the psalmist cries out to the Lord and finds deliverance. In Paul's moment of need, he cries out to the Lord and knows that he will find deliverance. And so he says, I believed, therefore I spoke. I want to say to you, the application is pretty clear and pretty direct to us. In your moment of need, this is what you are supposed to do. Your temptation is going to be not to do what Paul is saying and not to do what the psalmist did. Your temptation is going to be to fear and to dissolve in anxiety. And you have to fight that. Anxiety is a vice. It drives out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, all the fruits of the Spirit. And that's why it's our duty to fight and to oppose fear with all of our might whenever it comes upon us. How do we do that? What can be done? Well, Paul's saying, look at the psalmist. I believed, therefore I spoke. When the psalmist said, I spoke, he's talking about crying out to God. Paul says the same thing. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, don't be anxious. Okay, great. What am I supposed to do about that? I'm feeling anxious. Presto, it doesn't go away just because you tell me not to be anxious. Well, he tells you what to do when you're feeling anxious. What do you do? He gives you the means that God intends for us to use to fight fear. Let your requests be made known to God. It's the same thing as Psalm 116. It's the same thing as 2 Corinthians 4. I believed, therefore I spoke. Let your requests be made known to God. The very crying out to God requires at least a little bit of faith. A little bit of, there's somebody at the end of the line. And it may feel real tiny to you. That's not the point. What's on the other end is a lot bigger. And he can answer, even if what you're reaching out with this feels really tiny. So you let your request be made known. What if it doesn't work? You keep doing it. (laughs) You go back and back and back and you don't give up. I feel really bad. Then tell him. You cry out to the Lord. Let your request be made known. That's how you are going to attack fear. You believe and therefore you speak to God. And you cry out in humble dependence. If you're terrified about the future, tell him you're terrified about the future. If you're terrified about the pandemic, then tell him. If you're terrified about dying, then tell them. If you're terrified about an illness in you or your kid, you tell them. You go to him and you cry out for deliverance and ask for what you want. Say you want to be saved from it. Say you want to be healed. Ask for whatever you want. And then ask, For God to answer according to his wise and sovereign will. You ask God to deliver you. Make your request known. And the very act of crying out to God, that is an act of faith. And the weaker you are, and the louder you cry, and the louder you cry, the more your dependence on him comes through. 
It's not about your strength, but about his strength. And when you've done this, the next part of Philippians 4 comes true. So that was Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious. Let your request be made known. Then verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what you do. And so Paul explains why he has confidence to cry out to God like this. Look at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul can have hope in the dark moments because he knows that the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in him and will also raise up his mortal body from the dead. He doesn't have to be scared of dying because dying is the worst thing that can happen to him. And guess what? Jesus has defeated death. That's just not the end of the story for any of us. If we die, that's okay. <laughs> There'll be grieving for a moment, but then joy forever. Jesus has defeated it, and Paul's saying he can walk confidently even into the worst because he knows that he's going to be raised up again from the dead. And what's the point of his confidence in the face of this kind of challenge, of this kind of suffering? He says in verse 15, he says, it's all for your sake. For it is all for your sake that I'm doing this. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase, increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I'm doing this for you, Paul says. I'm suffering for you. I'm laying it all down for you, because he loves them. And the more he suffers, the more God's power works through him, changing sinners into saints and pagans into prayers who are pouring out their hearts in thanksgiving to God. And who gets the glory for that? Clay pots being filled with power everywhere. Who gets the glory for that? Not the clay pot, but the one supplying all the power. So that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So do you have a vision for how God works through your weakness? Do you have a vision for how God wants to show his power through your weakness? Can you walk into gospel suffering and despise its shame? Because you're looking through the glory looking through to the glory that's on the other side. This is why Paul says things like, I'm convinced that the suffering of the present time isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's despising its shame. That's like, that is nothing compared to what's on the other side. God's aim is to show his power in our suffering, in our mortality, and in our thanksgiving. So for all of the short years that God gives you on this fallen world and for all the good or evil that you might do while you are here, what will it come to if you die at the end? What have you really fixed if you can't fix death? You haven't fixed anything. But the good news is that God fixed it. God has fixed death in his son, Jesus. I sometimes think about what the years ahead are going to bring to us here at Kenwood Baptist Church. And as the years go by, we are going to be saying farewells to one another. And we're going to sit with one another at bedsides, on deathbeds. And we'll walk with one another all the way to the river's edge. What do we need to hear from one another in those moments? in the ultimate moments. We need to hear this, that the God who raised the Lord Jesus is also going to raise us up through his power. And he's going to raise us up together with you. He who raised the Lord Jesus, verse 14, will raise us, us, raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
Did you get that it's not just about resurrection, but it's about resurrection together? We say goodbyes for now, but not goodbyes forever. These are the kinds of words that we're going to need to say to each other because this is the kind of faith that we're going to have to have in these moments, which are going to be inevitable for us. If you're here this morning and you don't know any of this, you're not a Christian and you know it, the Bible says you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself and you could have all the groundhog days in the world and it wouldn't be enough to save yourself and you'd never fix dead. You'd never fix it. But the Bible says that this judgment of death which God has put upon sinners because of their sin, he's dealt with by sending his very own son to die on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. Then he raises him up three days later to give us eternal life. If you're going to live forever and have hope on the other side of this broken world, you have to get connected to that. You have to get connected to Jesus, who is alive right now and seated at the right hand of the Father, and the only way to get connected to him is to trust in him. You turn from your sin and you say, I want Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. You believe in him. If you believe in him, the Bible says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He'll save you. He'll save you this morning. You need to repent of your sin. This is your invitation right now. Turn away from your sin and repent and believe in the gospel and live forever. Let me pray for you. Father, take this word, apply it to our hearts. Make us into the image of Christ. Make us God-fearing, death-defying, death-despising saints. We know we are not that, but you aim to make us that. We want to be the clay pots that hold under the pressure and bear witness to the power of God inside of us. So again, we know we're not sufficient for these things, but you are. And so we're throwing up our little thin line, and we're asking you to answer. And we're praying it in Jesus' name. Amen.